0: Hello, welcome to Peter Rollins HQ. Peter Rollins, Peter Rollins, my goodness, take two. Welcome to Peter Rollins HQ. Uh, This is part two of the uh, theme that I started the other day. I think I said to you that I would pop in tomorrow or yesterday and do something else, but um, I didn't. So if you were sitting on Facebook waiting for me to come on and um, drop some pearls of wisdom, I apologize, um, I was being lazy, but I am here today, I'm just back from having given the talk in LA uh, with some friends and very cool people, so I'm back in my house, got a slightly different angle today because uh, I need to be charging my iPhone, so I'm beside a plug. Uh, Have we got anybody watching so far? Anybody in the room with me? I always feel like Facebook Live is like you're in my living room and I'm in your living room. So please do say hi. Uh, Tell me where you're listening in from. We've had lots of people from the US. We have people all over Europe. Lots of people from the Netherlands. Crazy thing is nobody knows who I am anywhere in the world except in the Netherlands. People like me out there. There's a, I've got a couple of books. One book translated, a second book being translated. Um, so maybe I have to move to the to the Netherlands, um, learn Dutch. Okay, oh, look, thankfully some people are, there's Joseph, hey, Joseph. There's some people starting to say hello. I was feeling lonely for a second. It's like nobody's, nobody's out there. Um, Melbourne, Florida. I'm sorry, Christian, Melbourne isn't in Florida. Melbourne is in Australia. You're just all messed up. I apologise. Uh, hey James, how's it going? Good to see you. Uh, who else? Oh, there's Sarah. Hi Sarah. Uh, lots of usual suspects, I'm telling you. My goodness, we're going to have to do a Facebook Live all together because it seems like uh, a few of you have been following along live with these. Um, oh, there's someone from Germany. Hey, how's it going? Germany, the home of theology. Some people are asking me if I have anything translated in German, and I don't, but I'm really keen to, uh, to do that. I'm actually talking to someone at the moment about translating my works into French, so that might be happening. But hey, if the Germans are the theological ones among us. So uh, two days ago, I talked a little bit about the idea of uh, the other being a subject, that demands our response, there is this infinite demand from the other combined with absolute responsibility that we have to take, from not knowing exactly what we should do in any political situation or in a relationship or whatever, not quite knowing what the loving thing is to do, but still having to do something and having to own up when it goes wrong, and also be happy when it goes right on occasion <laughs> um, and I talked about. The technology of theology is liturgy and liturgy is a technology that cultivates a sensitivity to this call of the other and um, draws us into uh, a place where we can take responsibility for our acts. That it doesn't think for us, doesn't give us the answers, doesn't kind of nail things down, but rather helps us to confront our freedom and our responsibility. There you go. That's what we did yesterday, easy peasy, or the day before yesterday, very sorry. Um, Today, I just want to briefly reflect on a second part of liturgy as this technology to cultivate a sensitivity of the self, uh, to cultivate a sensitivity to the other, Um, this weird weekly ritual that we do. What, at its best, should we be getting out of it? Now, of course, I have sometimes have to say this, um, I don't say it enough, but uh, when I'm talking about liturgy, people then immediately think that I'm talking about what happens on a Sunday morning. And you know what? Sometimes it does happen on a Sunday morning, but often uh, at a church, but often it's not. I mean, I'm talking about a type of space, a type of theological space, but it, I don't know if it often happens or needs to happen at all in, in a church environment. So anyway, I just want to just want to say that because whenever people hear the word liturgy they obviously it's a very religious term and it has a certain connotation so anyway today I want to talk about rituals rituals liturgy is type of ritual so what kind of ritual is it or what kind of ritual uh, should it be Um, just for clarity I'm going to define two different types of ritual I'm going to look at rituals that help to cover over our unknowing our anxieties and our sufferings, and rituals that help bring them to the surface, right? So you could say a lot of religious uh, liturgies, a lot of religious uh, traditions are a type of mythology, and a mythology is a story that covers over the cracks of our unknowing. It gives us some sort of sense of place and purpose in our lives. And from very early on, we want that in our lives. Of course we do. We are terrified. I mean. Go back to being a kid. Being a kid is terrifying. You're in a crazy world where everything is huge. I mean, everything is huge to me because I'm still small, but whenever you're a kid, you're even smaller. You're tiny. It's frightening. You're, you're experiencing fears. Um, you're experiencing explosions in your stomach that you don't even have a name for, which hunger, you know? Pain, coldness, overheating. You can't control most of these things. You're fully reliant on other people. It's a, it's a scary time. This is why most kids are totally obsessive, right? Um, obsessive compulsive. You know, kids want the same story read to them every night. Bam, 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 bam. They wanna watch the same movie. I don't know how I used to do it as parents. Like we have to watch Frozen a hundred times, right? Because the kid wants the same thing, right? The same song again and again, or has to touch taps the same amount of times, or has to have teddy bears lined up in a certain way. As children, most of us are are obsessives, and these are rituals that help us cope with a crazy world that we cannot understand that is terrifying, um, and and that's fine, and that's useful, and in very early facebook lives i think i talked about this but about how when you're a kid having that type of order um you know it's it's fine it's useful the problem with it there's a few problems with that one of the problems is simply that you know you can't grow up having security blankets and having these obsessive compulsions um because the world is not as forgiving as your parents right you, you won't be able to phone into work and say, I'm really sorry, I couldn't get into work today. I know there was a, a $10 million deal and the CEO had just flown in from um, South Africa. But, oh my goodness, there were so many cracks on the pavement. And you know I, you know Obviously, I'm not going to walk on the cracks, so I have to stay at home. Right? You're going to get fired. These obsessive compulsive things um, can get in the way of life. And any of us who have obsessive compulsions know that you might love to have a clean house and be even a little bit obsessive about it that's totally fine right but if your obsession with having a clean house stops you from going out you can't go out in the evening or you can't invite people over or it's always playing on your mind then you know it's destructive for you it's it's not something good it's something that's 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 damaging so we have these these, these obsessive rituals from when we we're young. And, and what we do is we try to help children look at what those rituals mean. So for example, a child has to have all the teddy bears lined up in a certain way. So you eventually ask why. And maybe the child says, well, you know, I'm scared of the monster and the teddy bears protect me from the monster. You go, okay, what's the monster? Well, the monster comes when daddy's at work. And you go, okay, daddy works on the oil rigs and he's away for four or five weeks at a time. And actually what's behind the ritual is a fear of the loss of the father. Um, Maybe, you know, that the father doesn't love the little girl or the little boy. Um, And that's what's behind the, the obsessive compulsive behavior, right? So then you can work it out and you can start to say well daddy loves you and daddy goes to work because he wants to look after you and you help the child deal with the anxiety that the ritual is covering over and when you do this the ritual begins to diminish you don't need it as much because the because the the, the thing that the, the the ritual is solving isn't there so therefore you don't really need it anymore right so this is part of growing up Right. You could say that a lot of religious uh, rituals act in a similar kind of way. We, you know, we're thrown into the world. We have lots of questions, we've got anxieties and fears, and religious rituals can often help cover over some of those. When life is difficult, people often go to church and they engage in certain activities and they feel better for it. Nothing wrong with that at all. But if you're not looking at what is underlying the ritual if you're not looking at what that ritual covers over the cracks that it papers over then eventually it becomes problematic you know you have to go more obsessive you have to go every week there's people who go to church every week honestly i know them that like, every week can you believe it and you know what church is like it's awful half the time I have to go every week every sunday right and it becomes something you know you do but <clears throat> so what's the alternative well in a sense. Um, there are rituals that don't cover over our anxiety and our suffering. There can be rituals that actually help to bring those to the surface, that help to bring them up in a way that we can cope with. This is why I'm always advocating singer-songwriters and comedians and storytellers, because often they, when we like when we listen to a singer-songwriter, we have a ritual where we go and we listen once a week to, you know, some musician. Um, that ritual if it's a good singer songwriter they can help us look at the pain in our own lives they can bring it to the surface in a way that is not going to destroy us i was talking to an artist this morning a very talented artist who um uh, does these incredible um kind of sculptures human sculptures wrapping people up almost like death shrouds and taking their picture and when you look at these pictures that he creates this guy called uh, Robert Mack, Robert M-A-C-K, Robert Mack. He, um, when you look at these images he creates, you're confronted by beauty, sexuality, and death. But you, there's a there's a skull-like, death-like quality to these pictures. That's what great artists often do, is they, they confront us with the things that we'd rather hide from. So going to an art gallery once a week can be a ritual in which... You know, looking at the art helps to draw out, you know, your own mourning, your own finitude, your own uh, kind of uh, questions and concerns politically and culturally. Right. So these these two types of of ritual. Like the reason why we have rituals that attempt to cover over our suffering, anxiety and pain is because we feel like we're unraveling at times. I love this word unraveling, you know you hear people say i 'm unraveling my life is unraveling everything 's coming apart to unravel means to pull apart, and you know one can feel like i 've got I used to believe everything I used to go to church every week, I used to thought I had it all right, and then someone I love broke my heart or you know I found out that I was ill and I was dying, or I lost my job or whatever, and suddenly I realized that things weren't as good as I was pretending. Or or maybe nothing happened. Maybe I got everything I wanted. I had the money. I had the relationship. I did everything that I thought I was supposed to do. I got the kids, the white picket fence. I, I got it all. And and now I've just got deadness inside. I just feel dead. Right? I'm unraveling. And so the rituals try to cover over that until they don't anymore. These days don't work. And what, so what do you do? Well, interestingly, the word raveling uh, means exactly the same as unraveling. To unravel and to ravel are exactly the same thing. Uh, there must be a term for that, <laughs> but I don't know what the term is. Um, and I remember actually we did a, I did a service uh, at a festival in England uh, where we had this big auditorium. And in this auditorium, we put this woman on some stepladders so that she looked like she was 20 feet tall. Because we we put a dress on her that reached right to the ground, made out of secondhand sweaters we got from a, an Oxfam. And then we got all these threads from that dress, and they went across the auditorium to people who were knitting, frantically knitting new clothes out of the unravelling of this amazing dress. And the first half of this evening, this event, was about unravelling looking about how our lives unravel, our beliefs unravel, our bodies unravel. And then the second half was about raveling. And what we were doing was we were saying that you can't get away from unraveling. You can't get away from doubt, unknowing, anxieties of various kinds. You know, we're all like the kid in a crazy universe that's sometimes terrifying. We all try to avoid that. And secretly, unconsciously, we flee death because we don't want to look at those things. If our father is ill, and my father's very ill at the moment, and it's very hard, very hard to visit him because, you know, you're confronted, I'm confronted with my own finitude in his eyes. Um, so all of us as human beings, we can feel this in various ways. We can run from it. And we are terrified of the unravelling that might happen. But the trick is this, that actually if we confront those parts of ourselves and we bring them to the surface, we start to find freedom from them. People say to me, okay, after the deconstruction, what do you reconstruct? And what I want to say to people is, well, no, after the unravelling is raveling. It's where you take the frustrations and the difficulties of life and you find energy out of those. You find potential out of those. You, 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 the frustrations of existence, You somehow. you somehow just change your position towards them and you use them as a fuel. And I've talked about Camus and the rebel before, but the rebel is the figure who is always kind of dissatisfied and wants something else but the rebel is the one who takes that dissatisfaction and enjoys it and loves it. And the act of rebellion, political and cultural and religious is one that brings life and freedom and joy and liberation. In some senses, nothing has changed, but everything has changed. So in this second part, all I want to say is that the technology of radical theology is a liturgy That creates rituals that bring to the surface our doubts, our sufferings, our guilt, all of our anxieties about being human. But they do it in a way through the sermon, the music, art, poetry, comedy. They bring that to the surface in a way that we can handle. They bring the truth into the light of day so that we're set free. Because when we push it down, that's when it destroys us. The analogy I use for this is of course the Irish pub. You go to the Irish pub in Galway in Ireland, for example, and, and you sit there and you'll see something very different from a regular nightclub. You go to a nightclub, you have alcohol, you have music, um, you have people, but the, the alcohol is there to get drunk and forget about things. The music is so loud it gets you to forget and you have superficial conversations. Do you go to the little bar in, in, in Galway and you have a pint and you sit and you see people talk about their week. And there's music, but the music doesn't drown out your life. The music connects you with your life. By the end of the night, everyone's singing together with their own instruments that they've brought. In a nightclub, everyone looks happy, but at 2 a.m., oh my goodness, it feels like the most depressing place ever. It feels like if you turned on the lights, turned off the music, and asked everybody to look at each other in the eyes just for 10 seconds, that you'd have a room full of people crying, you know? Whereas you go to an Irish pub at 2am and that's when it's getting started, the lock-in where everyone's got their instruments out and are singing folk songs. But yet, that Irish pub is a place where you've talked about your joys and your sufferings, you've talked about what's going on in your family life, you've talked about politics, you've fought about that stuff. And in doing that, you become freer and happier and you cultivate a a, a, a more graceful and, and a more graceful person but and hopefully also someone who is, is more concerned with the world um, and with helping. And that's what this liturgy is about. It's about being like the Irish pub, using various tools so that people who feel like they're unravelling discover that they're actually raveling. And you can revel, revel in the fact that you're reveling. Revel in the fact that you have doubts and unknowing and, and sometimes things seem too much. And yet take that on, find ways through art, through liturgy to say yes to that. To use it as a fuel to, to, to say amen to life rather than to, um, uh, uh, rather than to be crushed by it. Okay, there you go. There's some thoughts on unraveling and unraveling. Uh, let's see if any um, anyone's got any questions, thoughts. Um, let's see. Uh, Sergey. Uh, my opinion, we are living in an ongoing um, apocalypsis, a revelation. All is about to be revealed. We're living in an ongoing apocalypses I like that phraseology that way what I hear you saying and that is that that um, we live with a, an openness to the new um, because apocalypse literally means the incoming of what you could never expect Sergey knows this but the incoming of what what you could never imagine the, what's called the impossible in philosophy the possible is what you can put in your diary you know, oh yeah, tomorrow I'm gonna to meet my friend, the next day I'm gonna do this or do that. The apocalyptic moments are the moments that you never saw coming. You fall in love, you fall out of love, someone dies, something just something happens, a bam, you just never saw it coming. And it changes the course of your life. And for someone like John Caputo, religion instead of being about closing down the apocalypse, those moments, um it's a it's about generating a sensitivity to those moments. And uh, you know, cultivating the courage to face those moments, and to see in those moments possibilities for new worlds, even though sometimes those new worlds might be disastrous. Um, let's see. Uh, oh yeah, James, saying sorry to hear that about my dad. Yeah, I mean, he's doing okay, to be honest. Don't want to like you know bring a real downer to this, but he's doing okay. But. It's sadly, uh, you know, one of those things. Uh, I'm hoping that um, death doesn't happen to me, you know, but it seems like it's, it runs in my family. Like, you know, everybody in the past seems to have done it eventually. So it's a terrifying thing, And uh, but uh, facing it um, is, is important. You know, I'm actually having anxiety. I don't get anxiety at all, actually. I've, I've never had anxiety in my life, but I noticed a few Nights last week, I woke up with a kind of anxiety and I reflected on it, reflected on the dreams. is important to do, That's not And um, I realized that I was thinking about my own finitude more because obviously I'm facing the finitude of my, my, my family. Okay, let's see, let's see, let's see. Um, James says, what kind of liturgies would these be? Can creating art, which invites people into the freedom you speak of, be the liturgies, for example, books, music. Yeah, what? yeah, this is interesting, James. Like when I talk about liturgy, I love the term, um, because as I talked about, yeah, the day before yesterday, uh, things like you know, uh, science has technology, psychoanalysis has a technology, philosophy used to be a technology. Um, now it's just an academic thing. That's why, I, like, I've never, I've never done a day's work in a university in my life. As in, I, I, I've. You know got given lectures occasionally but i've, I've never worked full time for a for a university because for me philosophy is a technology um and uh, although I've got the utmost respect for many of my friends who are in the academic institution um people like socrates are are the way I think philosophy should be done you know on the streets and on facebook live events <laughs> um, but yeah so liturgy for me is is the it's like we need these spaces in our lives where we um, confront the ghosts, the darkness, the the difficulties, where we use art and music and various techniques to bring that up. I think that the church can provide some of that. Um, uh, It often doesn't, but it can happen anywhere. You can have different liturgies, different ways of, as I say, going to an art gallery once a week might be your way of kind of doing that. It happens in in lots of different ways. Um, and one ritual can help somebody, and not the other. There's that old story about two camels being led to market. One with a ton of cotton on its back, and one with a ton of salt on its back. Now it's overflowing with water from the previous day. This lake, and the two camels have to go through the lake to get to the to market. When the two camels come out, uh, the one with the salt on its back feels amazing, but the one with the cotton on its back drowns. Because the water dissolves the salt, and it makes sodden the uh, the cotton. In other words, you can both go through the same ritual, um, but for one of you, it brings life, and the other, it brings death. And that one has to be sensitive to what one needs, um, uh, you know. Anyway, Mary says, get to London, we need you. I was just close there. I was in Lincoln a couple of weeks ago. You should have been in Lincoln. Um, uh, yeah, that you, Justin's asking the question that I, to be honest, was supposed to be talking about but haven't in the last one or this one, which is, um, you know, what are some of the things that help facilitate a space that invite people who have these fears to unravel, right? That's, that's actually what I want to be doing on these Facebook lives, but I'm, I'm talking theoretically. But, I mean, very simply, like, this is indirect communication. It's, it's, it's that comedy. I, I saw the CK talk about death for 45 minutes one time. And it was so funny and it was so brilliant about a middle-aged guy facing his own finitude. But at the end, I realised that I had been touched by that and it actually had helped me look at those things. You know, good sermons and good stories and good music does it. Inviting the local singer-songwriter from the local coffee shop who sings beautifully about life, love and loss. Bringing them in and asking them to sing something. Talking about the the Psalms, uh, the... the uh, you know where there is suffering and pain and unknowing as part of the whole thing, there are great resources to enable you know people to do this. Um, you know you don't confront people directly. If I if I look at you and I see you're being nasty to your mum and I say, look you're being nasty to your mum, you're an asshole. Your defence mechanisms come up and you're like, no I'm not. My mum's a nightmare. You if you knew what she was like, you'd understand. But if I bring you out for a drink sit down with you and go, oh man, you seem a bit stressed, are you okay? You're likely to go, yeah, and to be honest with you, I really took it out on my mum. I feel a bit bad, I should really say sorry. So the difference is, if I directly confront you with your doubt or your unknowing or your you know, bitterness or resentment or anything, what it is, if I direct you, you protect yourself, you can't help it, even if you think I'm right. But if you can indirectly bring it up, through music and art and poetry, bring it to the surface. Then um, the person can, you know, more easily face those things. And uh, so, I, I do want to start doing teaching for people who want to do this in practice, in in actual communities. And um, building on fire, my building on fire events are kind of like that. Um, but you know, it's hard to get to. I'm doing. I only do one a month, uh, so I understand if you're no, nowhere where I will be close to. Um, okay. Oh, let me see. The problem is our liturgies have become safe in a world desperate for meaning. Uh, yeah, liturgies. Become, if you're saying yeah, liturgies become everything becomes rarefied over time, and so you have to kind of like mix things up. Um, so yeah, I'll I'll finish there. I don't want to bore you. Um, although of course you can always sign out, but I will be watching you. You're not allowed to do that. Um, uh, but we've covered you know the the call of the other and our responsibility to the other and the last one this this facebook live i just wanted to introduce the idea of thinking about rituals and liturgies that help to draw out the the things that we're dealing with and confronting because you know what everybody around you in any group anywhere in the world are having battles great battles they're fighting with insecurities and pain and lots of things. And, um, you know, sometimes we try to bury those things so that we just get migraines and fatigue and bad backs and, uh, and outbursts of anger or tears. But eventually we go, right, we're going to have to bring this to the surface. And uh, I was just talking about how, how can liturgies do that and how can liturgies help us see that unravelling can be raveling. Um, I also just want to tell you that if you are interested in these ideas then I have a whole four or five days in Ireland once a year where five of us come, five of us, no uh, 50 of us um, come together for a festival called Wake and I call it Wake because a wake in Ireland is a type of ritual around a death. It's a ritual where you remember what has died, you you know, uh, you, what, what do you call it, cheers it, you kind of like toast, toast to the death. You mourn and you move on. And so Wake is a place where people who maybe their religious fundamentalism has begun to die or they, maybe they've moved on to a different community and something else has died, someone they know has died, and they want a space to work that through. WAKE provides that, we have artists, musicians, we do pub crawls and street art tours, and we just spend those four days together, five if there's a pre-event as well. And uh, so if if you're interested in that, look on my website, uh, go onto my Facebook, you'll find more information. This will be year five, so it's the fifth anniversary of WAKE. I still keep it to 50 because I like to keep it really, really small and intimate. And apart from that, if you're in Australia or New Zealand, I'll be out there. I leave in a few days. Um, And uh, I'm also doing some stuff in Detroit and L.A. coming up. So keep an eye on all of those things. Uh, I appreciate you uh, clicking in and listening to me wax lyrical about these issues. Um, Tomorrow or the day after, next couple of days, I'll probably do a part three to this. Um, And, uh, you know, I'll maybe stop there. I'm not sure. Thanks a lot, everybody. Take care. Have a great day. I'll talk to you soon.